Topic six, fourth paper of twentieth century Negro literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. Twentieth century Negro literature. Topic six, fourth paper by attorney J. Thompson Hewan. Is the criminal Negro justly dealt with in the courts of the South? J. Thomas Hewan was born in Dinwiddie County, Virginia, December 24, 1871. His parents were slaves. He was left an orphan at the age of 13, with no knowledge even of the alphabet. At the age of seventeen he was seized with a desire for an education. Finding no opportunity for mental improvement, he went to Richmond, Virginia, in 1889, where he found employment in a stone quarry. He took his books with him and studied at mealtime. In the fall he became janitor of a business college. Finding that he could do his janitor work mornings and evenings, he entered the public school of Richmond and afterward graduated from the Richmond Normal School as valedictorian of his class. So thrifty was Mr. Hewan that when he graduated from school he had a bank account of $1,375 to his credit. He also graduated from the Boston University Law School and after returning to his native state was admitted to the bar. He was especially helpful to the unfortunate of his race. He organized in Richmond the Anti-Deadly Weapon League among the young colored men of the place, for which he received the commendation of the press and people. He is a member of the Baptist Church, an ardent worker among his people, a power as an organizer and an orator of the Frederick Douglass type. For a man of color to approach a subject of this kind, first of all, he must crucify self. He must not imagine that he is writing to suit the whims, fancies, and caprices of a single individual, but must confine himself to the pure and unadulterated truth. To discuss this question from a lawyer's point of view, that is to say, by detailed cases, would be unintelligible to an ordinary layman's mind. Therefore, we must confine ourselves to the subject from a layman's way of understanding legal matters. The Negro occupies today a peculiar position in the body politic. He is not wanted in politics because his presence in official positions renders him obnoxious to his former masters and their descendants. He is not wanted in the industrial world as a trained handicraftsman, because he would be brought into competition with his white brother. He is not wanted in city positions, because positions of that kind are always saved for the white, ward-healing politicians. He is not wanted in state and federal offices, because there is an unwritten law that a Negro shall not hold an office. 
he is not wanted on the bench as a judge because he would have to pass upon the white man's case also nor is he wanted on public conveyances because here his presence is obnoxious to white people but let us not lose sight of our subject which is is the criminal negro justly dealt with in the courts of the south permit the author of this article to say that there is no section in this country where there is not some prejudice against the negro whether the negro be tried for a crime he commits in the north or south he will get as fair a verdict upon the law and evidence as presented in a southern court as in the courts of any state in this union when we see such awful examples of brutality and inhumanity as occur in some sections of our common country against the negro we do not wonder that people who live in distant lands say that there can be no justice for a negro in the southern states this assertion has been repeated so often that now it is a common thing for men to say that a negro can get no justice in the south yet it is important for us to note that not one of these miscarriages of justice is traceable to the partiality of the courts they are the result of men's prejudices who are not willing for the negro's case to be tested upon its merits because they know that in nine cases in ten he would be acquitted in a court of justice and for this reason they take the law into their own hands rather than submit it to an intelligent cool and unprejudiced judicial body as every court is is there a man under heaven who would charge this state of affairs up against the courts of the south certainly no one can be found who would do it it has been my experience in my state in the trial of criminal cases that in nine cases out of ten the white juries are in sympathy with the poor ignorant negro i think the game rule will hold good in other th southern states when we approach the subject of criminal law we must constantly bear in mind that the object of every criminal prosecution is twofold one to reform the criminal two to make an example of him so that the public will be deterred from the commission of the same offense it is not the severity of a criminal prosecution that deters crime but it is the certainty of punishment when crime is committed while it is true that the courts of the south as constituted at present give the negro equal justice upon the law and facts of his case yet we must bear in mind that a criminal prosecution is not ended with judgment in the courts there are other humane principles to be put into operation in order that the criminal may receive the benefits of his punishment the relation of the southern courts towards the negro in this respect is particularly weak splendid examples of this may be seen in the convict lease system prevailing in the states of south carolina 
Arkansas, and other southern states. Under this system, a Negro may be convicted of a felony calling for a minimum term of imprisonment, and yet serve out a lifetime in prison. It is a system which, instead of reforming the Negro, gradually re-enslaves him. It has become such an outrage upon justice and common decency that the eyes of the civilized world are upon the United States to see how long a democratic government will tolerate such an outrage upon common justice and a defenseless people. Yet when we, at home, begin to trace the causes of this evil, we invariably ascribe them to the courts of the South. Wrong! Wrong! The courts of the South are not legislative bodies, but judicial bodies whose function it is to interpret the laws made and not to make laws. That right in a republic like ours belongs exclusively to the legislative department and not to the judiciary. The failure on the part of the public to distinguish between the legislative and judicial branches of the government accounts in a large measure for the criticism that has been made upon the courts of the South in their dealings with the criminal Negro. It is well for us to bear in mind that a court cannot make a law but can only confine its opinion to the law as it is. It is a well-known fact that the United States and the several states composing the same are governed by written constitutions. Also, that in a constitutional government all laws must be uniform in their operation. Hence, no law can be made that will operate more harshly upon a Negro than upon a white man who is guilty of the same offense. The criminal Negro naturally thinks that he is dealt with unjustly in the court. I have never seen in my practice a Negro who did not think that a white judge and a white jury were not his enemies, and that they were looking for false evidence upon which to convict him and were not desirous of passing upon his case on the law and evidence as presented. This, in a large measure, accounts for the enormous fees paid by Negroes to white attorneys for the simplest trouble they may get into. They believe that a white man has more influence in a court than a Negro lawyer, as though the laws were based upon favors to individuals rather than upon fixed rules of judicial construction. As for the judiciary of other states, I cannot speak. But for Virginia, I can, and I will say that for the integrity of her judiciary, a fairer and more impartial set of men cannot be found in this country. Never in my life has any one of them treated me amiss in their courts. Nor can I point to a single case where snap judgment was meted out to a man of color for the simple reason that he was colored. The experience of my brother members of the bar in other states 
seems to tally with mine in this respect. Though I did once read of a Mississippi judge, who told some colored men who had assembled in his court to listen to the trial of one of their race, that this was a white man's country, and that Negroes had no business in a courtroom unless they are on business. Lest we forget it, we will say it now, that the greatest of all virtues is charity. The numerous complaints we hear about the maltreatment of the Negro do not come from within, but from without. They come from people who know nothing of the position we occupy in the South. They tell us that the Southern people are our enemies, that they are doing us all the harm that can be done to any people. Worst of all, our people in many instances are silly enough to believe them, ignorant of the fact that their success depends upon making their next-door neighbors their friends. The same people take this charge and lay it to the courts of justice. Shame that in a democratic government like ours a free people should be slaves to such tricksters whose only object is to create discord among a poor and defenseless people. When we hear people charging the southern courts with treating the Negro unjustly, it reminds us of an old colored lady who was once warning a young colored man about dying in his sins. The young man wanted to know if the fire in hell was hot. The old lady said, Honey, the old sinners fetch their fire with them. If the Negro gets a harsh verdict at the bar in a southern court, it is because he brings his fire with him. Just why it is that the Negro cannot see things in the same light, I do not know. It is a rule of physics that action is equal to reaction and in the contrary direction. By the side of that we can put the statement that a man is worked upon by that which he works. The Negro, as a rule, labors under the belief that he is an object of persecution and proscription, and in turn that insane belief so works upon him that it is useless for anybody to endeavor to make him believe otherwise. There is one thing I must say before I close, and that is this, that if the Negro wants to break down the great undercurrent against him in the courts of the South, he must do all in his power to establish among his own people the element of caste, a line between the good and bad. He must frown upon those who do wrong and uphold those who do right. He must lay aside the old adage that you must never do anything against your own color. If a man is my color and he is wrong, I am against him. If a man is my color and he is right, I am for him. Let the Negro adopt this as a maxim and justice in the courts of the South is his, now and forever. End of Topic 6th, 4th Paper